Welcome to the Combat Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peacock. My guest today is Bruce Hoyer, head coach at the Next Edge MMA Academy and an innovator in BJJ practice design. In this episode, we talk about his unique flipped classroom model approach to running BJJ classes and designing curriculum, as well as how coaches can use technology to enhance their training programs. The material in this episode is a lot of fun to think about, so if you're excited to jump in, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcatcher now. did you get into motor learning and coaching science? Sure. Um, so, you know, first of all, my name is uh, Bruce Hoyer. I've been training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for about 19 years. Um, was originally from South Dakota, but I've made, you know moved all over the Midwest. Um, was absolutely terrible at Jiu-Jitsu for the, you know, the first couple of years of uh, training. And, you know, so I just decided that I was going to go out and, you know, still compete and uh, train everywhere that I could. And, uh, ended up kind of starting um, pretty much, I think, like the second uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu podcast way back when. So I think ByteWorks was the first one ever, and then we were the second with uh, BJJ Connect. And while that was a little bit of a failure in the fact that it, uh, like we, I, you know, as is most podcasts go, it, it becomes super labor-intensive, but it allowed me to go and train um, with a lot of people, uh, high-level guys, especially back then. This is probably, you know, 2003, 2004. Um, where, you know, anytime any, you know, black belt could get a little bit of notoriety or an interview, things like that, they were trying to, because they were trying to build up their brand and their, their name. And so it allowed me to train with uh, a lot of, like I said, really well-known guys back then. Um, and so it was kind of nice. And so, um, but I started getting uh, a little bit better in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, managed to win a, a world championship at Purple Belt, um, did very well regionally at like IBJJF tournaments at Brown. Um, and then I've won a couple tournaments at, at Black. Um, but, uh, I've, uh, you know, never won a, an IBJJF tournament, at black belt. Um, but, uh, you know, I've had the chance to, you know, we had our instructor here for the longest time, but he ended up moving down to Arizona. And so I kind of picked up where he left off and that's where I started teaching. Um, and since then it's been under, uh, Rodrigo Medeiros or better known as Comprito, um, out of Chicago. So going to there to train with him as much as possible or bring him out here. Um, so that's how he got started in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, and then after that, um, you know, I'd been coaching for, you know, almost five or six years and I, I decided that, okay, I want to start figuring out a way to make this better. Because one of the things that was super frustrating for me as a coach was either I had to teach something that was semi-basic, um, to, uh, students. So everybody could get a feel for it. And, and granted, like, I think it's always good to polish up on, on basics, but some of the advanced folks would be a little bit bored with it. And then if I taught something that was a little bit more complex, um, you know, it was the, the newer students were becoming super, uh, were struggling with it super hard or would become annoyed with like so many steps from this. And so that kind of grew like a, a fascination with me of trying to figure out how to make a better class for everybody. And so, um, you know, I think some coaches take care of it by doing a beginner, intermediate and advanced class. Um, and for me, like that was a struggle because I wanted it, my students to learn from my other students. And I feel like everybody should be able to go to any class available. Um, and so I wanted to figure out how to, how to incorporate all those things. 
And so that, that led you into looking at research and, and things like yeah. that. Um, so I read, you know, I probably have more books on, you know, motor learning and, and coaching and learning um, than jujitsu, honestly. And so, you know, I really delved into those and, and said, okay, what can we take this? Uh, and I think a lot of it is is definitely theory and it's, it's tough to make happen in a real world scenario, but um, yeah. to the, to the annoyment of a lot of the students that I have started going through different iterations of, okay, how can we, how can we change this around to make this work? I think my students for a while were getting annoyed there because I was changing stuff every week, trying to see if it was better. And, and in, in hindsight, that's probably not a very good test in the fact that I did it for, you know, a week and I was like, Oh, this worked or this failed or whatever. But yeah, so I just started kind of <laughs> with class, you know, classes format, if you will, you know, for a long time from then. So. Very cool. So you're known for applying the flipped class model to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. What is the flipped class model and how does it work with martial arts? Sure. So the flipped classroom style would be, you know, at, at its whole for like, if we were to talk about it in Brazilian jiu-jitsu terms, um, taking all the instruction out of the class and putting it mostly in uh, their off time. And so like, if there was, you know, if you're a regular student, um, think of doing like the um, watching everything at, at home, um, the, the lesson portion of it and doing all the homework there, you know? So, um, I really like that idea because, you know, uh, a lot of times with parents now, the students are doing, you know, say they're doing calculus or something like that. You take that home and you, you can't work on it because it's, you know, that your parent doesn't know how to do that. And so it's, it's nice. It seemed like a, a relevant model to me. And the fact that like, if you, you know, just like if you were home and you, you could try to figure out calculus and you, if you struggle with it, you're doing it there in class. And that's, what I'm trying to do on the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu side, we recorded pretty much all of our lesson plans, or maybe I'll use a, a video from YouTube, um, which is, you know, previously that was like a complete no-no by instructors. Like never look at YouTube because it's always some guy rolling around in the grass and he doesn't know what he's talking about. But now right. with, I mean, you go on there and it's just a, a plethora of high level instructors. I mean, you, you cannot get, like that level of quality anywhere else, I think, unless you were to travel all the time and get the, you know, that many different opinions and that many different uh, ways of doing something and kind of finding everybody's little secret. So it's super nice. So um, the practical side of it is we have all of our students watch what I want them learning um, beforehand. And so when they come in class, they should just be replicating that. And so um, when we first started, it was like, 15 minute videos of me talking about this ad nauseum of this technique. And so now I, I had to slowly bring those down and bring those down. And what's, um, so now it's like maybe a two minute video that they can just keep rewatching. And then what we've done on top of that is, um, made like a little 10 second gift of just the technique for them to reference during the class. But my hope is, and, and what usually Very happens cool. most of the time is they'll, they'll watch the videos beforehand. And then when they come in, they just have, the the entire day to work on those things and, and kind of tinker rather than what you know listen to me talk for 20 minutes as i try to instruct so yeah for sure and i know um even good instructors sometimes fall into the trap of over teaching like just way too much detail um going off on tangents and you know we get excited because we love this stuff so if we, yeah. we want to coach we want to teach we we really go into like super in-depth but that um, I'm sure you'll agree that probably inundates students too much. They just want to know the ideas so they can kind of 
start figuring right. it out. You know, what's funny is, is Keenan was talking about that on, um, you know, Josh Hinger, who I had the pleasure, pleasure that I cannot talk to the, the pleasure of training with a couple of weeks ago. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Keenan, were talking about that uh, a couple of weeks ago where Keenan was like, man, I don't want, he's like, before I had this, like, you know, when he was a blue belt, he was trying to show other white belts, um, how to learn or how to, you know, do ter- certain moves. And when he was a purple belt, he was trying to do that. And, you know, he went on to say, he's like, I think that's a terrible idea. You shouldn't learn from lower belts. And I, and I disagree. I think honestly, right. in my opinion, the blue belts should be showing the white belts, the purple belts should, should be showing the blue belts. And it should be just like a constant sharpening of, an, of a, a sword rather than, um, because the, from everything that I've read, as far as learning, I'm actually the worst person to teach somebody because I have so much knowledge that when I try to say, okay, let's do arm bar. Like you said, I give them too much information where it's okay. You have to do this, 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 and this. And really what it should be is like, okay, you'll get this, you know, 25%. Once you get that 25% correct, then move on. Now you're going to get 35% rather than trying to get a hundred percent every single time. Mm-hmm. So it's, and I, I think that creates it, it. What I'm trying to do is have that with the students. So, for the most part, I'm walking around to make sure that everything looks correct. But the other students are mostly uh, that, you know, the senior students are helping out newer students. And then if the senior student has a question, they can ask me. Um, but it, it should be kind of a trickle down process. So everybody gets um, a little bit better, I think. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. Um, and I used to be the same way. It's like you have to have a qualified instructor for every aspect of instruction. It has to be 100 percent correct detail um, you know, X, Y, Z, but, um, are you familiar with the, the concept of social learning? Um, no. Okay. So that sounds exactly to me like a concept called social learning. And that's kind of, um, that's, it's involved with motor learning, but I, I kind of discovered it kind of more in a classroom learning kind of setting. Um, basically the, the idea behind social learning is that, your instru- your relationship with your instructor is different than your relationship with your peers. And for whatever reason, um, your learning actually tends to become more rapid and more impactful if you learn a lot from your peers instead of uh, whoever's the learning or instructional authority. Um, I'm not entirely sure why that is, but it's awesome. And I thought you were actually listening to the way you've set up your um, your classroom structure. I thought you were actually familiar with that term. So um, that that's what it sounds like to me that you've actually built a community of learning um, yeah. where you can you can leverage the principle of social learning because you have so many peers at different levels that can actually help and come alongside your new newer students or really students at, at any level and right. help them along to their position. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's funny that like when I watch a technique of somebody do it and I say, okay, let me see that technique. It's crazy to me the like the amount of anxiety that a student has by, okay, now they're being watched by the instructor rather than, like you said, another peer to where they they feel like they can make quite a few more mistakes and and clean it up if a peer is looking at it compared to me, which um, I don't understand. Maybe I come off too harshly when I uh, make corrections or something, but uh, I think that's probably most uh, students and the fact that if you're, you know, if your teacher was looking at it compared to if another student was looking at it, um, the level of difference that, uh, of anxiety that you would have. So, yeah, I think anxiety probably definitely plays into that, um, equation. I, I know that, so I used to teach children a lot and I can, I was, I had a, a much more, 
I don't know how to describe it. I wasn't strict like a lot of traditional martial arts are. Um, I taught Taekwondo. And sure. um, a lot of the, the instructors had more of a bad cop kind of thing to them. And I was, I was the good cop. That was my instructional style. So I had a very big brother type of relationship with my students. They, they talked to me a lot. They wanted to, you know, they wanted to come up and tell me how their day was as soon as they came in and they wanted to talk my ear off, you know, after class and everything. So I, I felt like it was a really low pressure, low anxiety kind of, um, format, but still, um, it's still like, even with that, that, that relationship, they didn't want to let me down. So it was still like more anxiety if I came by and was like, hey, show me the technique. I want to see what you're doing. As opposed to another student, maybe a little older, a little little higher level, like, hey, you know, do this or that, where it's more of like a playful situation and there's way less um, anxiety, as you said, or more uh, less expectations on right. the on the situation. So I think that's definitely, definitely a part of it. Um, and there's probably other things that I don't know about that are involved with it. I think I've only read one book on social learning. It's definitely something I would like to research more. But that was, I just thought that was really interesting. I wanted to call that out. Yeah, no, I, I think you're 100 percent, you know, right on in the fact that like that's that's something that we definitely tried to do, um, whether I knew it, you know, or, or not. But that's the um, my my guess is that through reading, we've <laughs> they just didn't maybe use the term, but uh, definitely had the same idea. So. Yeah, definitely. A lot of these really research-based um, concepts, they kind of, they mesh into each other because mm-hmm. they, they're, they're logically related because we're all trying to find, you know, how do, how do humans learn? What's the, the, right. op, the general trend in how humans tend to learn? Right. And so eventually you're going to have a lot of overlap. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I'm, I'm actually interested to know what other procedures or strategies do you have that you use to enhance and support the flipped classroom model? Um, so, you know, we've kind of gone through a couple of different um, versions of this, if you will. So when we started, it was, um, you know, all the instructionals were on a website, um, or actually the first one was um, through Evernote. And so when we went through Evernote, um, every day I would go in and I would update the students' um, lesson plan saying, okay, go ahead and do this and then this and then this. And so um, that got to be a little bit of a cumbersome process. And so we switched to a, an online um, WordPress LMS. And we, you know, I thought that that would be great. Um, and I think the, the other problem that we ran into is when students tried to um, look on the website, maybe their, you know, their password went bad or, or they struggled to get on there. Um, so, you know, we, we try to make it easier and easier. So our next version or, you know, our latest version is we just have everything on a Google document, um, a curriculum that, you know, starts as a schedule from top to bottom and everybody kind of goes through those. And so they get access to a Google drive, um, folder, and then they're looking through those things. And so each thing, uh, each lesson plan has, um, a little bit of the gifts on it and then, uh, moves from there. So, um, <clears throat> we've slowly tried to add in some of the um timing stuff so in other words um like uh, so maybe that first day they might go through concepts um so then a lot of it is you know concept based um so the second day might be sweeps from a you know a particular position like close guard um third day might be passes fourth day might be submissions um and then they're going through a fifth day of uh you know reviewing and then trying to change some of those things that they've learned uh together um, and then that 
within that self, like the the position, those will rotate um, every once in a while as well. And so we want to get in, um, you know, spaced repetition. I know that that's a, a key thing as well. So you'll see some of those positions. They'll be going back to those um, after a certain amount of time, usually like we're, we're hoping for like a month. Um, and then also going through those for like a, um, you know, seven days at a time usually. Um, and so the, you know, between this, the, um, uh, space repetition, and then also just the, um, format that we do. That's a lot of, uh, what we're trying to put in place, I think. Cool. And spaced repetition for those who don't know what that is, could you explain that briefly? Sure. Um, so the idea is that, um, in my opinion, like I said, I, I'm not claiming to be an expert, but, uh, that, uh, say if somebody were to do an arm bar from guard, um, I want them working on that for like a week. Um, and then if you, um, go a little bit later I, there, I wanted to have a little bit of a degree of, um, like failure or, um, to like have that be slightly incorrect later. Um, and so then when they repeat it again, um, it has to activate, uh, the brain and say, okay, how do I do this again? Um, and so whether that be, you know, two weeks or a month later, um, I still think we're, we're working on that, uh, precise timing of it. Um, but, and I think it'll be a little bit different for everybody. Um, and they're the, based on how much they, you know, how well they are at that particular technique. Um, but being able to, you know, hit like an arm bar from close guard solid for a couple of days and then giving it a little bit of a rest and then coming back to it later to see if you remember it. And then, you know, for me, actually, the hope is that you, uh, like made a, a few mistakes in there. We correct those um, and then move on later. And so because I, I think a lot of my students struggle with the idea of like um, me actually being okay with them having a little bit of a struggle because if they come in and they can't quite remember how to do something that tells me, um, you know, that we don't quite have it in there yet. And so that should also give them a little bit of anxiety. If they have a little bit of anxiety about not uh, knowing that technique, um, then it makes the brain uh, try to remember it that much more determines that it's important. And then, uh, they're trying to, you know, obviously you're going to be able to remember that a little bit more the next time. So. Very cool. So I traditionally instructors seem to be kind of obsessed with perfecting technique immediately. They want mm -hmm. to break down every move in a way that lets you do it successfully through like a, like a progression of steps because they don't want to see those mistakes. Right. Um, and it kind of, I guess it would, it, it, hampers your ability to explore the technique and kind of discover things on your own. Um, and on the Perception and Action podcast, I've heard the host call this errorless learning. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like a lot of these really traditional ideas around learning, whether they have been studied by instructors, um, instructors seem to like totally fall in line with all these really tr traditional um, old ideas about um, teaching. Because your system is based around spaced learning and a degree of exploration, I was wondering why you decided to move away from the traditional errorless learning model of instruction. Um, you know, because in some of the learning, I actually think a lot of this, a couple uh, episodes of the same podcast that you were talking about, the it, it, I think there's really no like perfect technique for like each thing. I think it's going to be a perfect technique for each person. And so I think they need to actually figure that out a little bit for themselves. And if they do that, um, that makes a whole lot more sense to them. It's, you know, so like a reference of this would be, um, <clears throat> if you go out there and you're, 
um, training and you figure out this new, um, you know, way on how to do an arm bar or, you know, how, all these crazy, you know, leg entanglements that you'll see somebody do a, a you know, a crazy series. Um, because, you know, in, in their eyes, that was, um, uh, not an intrinsic learning, uh, scenario, but like, a uh, intrinsic learning, they, like, I feel like they adhere to that a little bit more and they, they understand it better. They, um, you know, they feel like that's really theirs. And so with that, um, you know, if I can get my students to do that, uh, the chances of them being able to remember it should be a lot higher, um, just because they feel like they kind of figure that out rather than, you know, having to be told it. Yeah. So, um, so a strange thing that, that the perception and action podcast kind of keeps highlighting a lot is that, um, didactic or direct instruction seems to lead to more, I guess you would call it, they call it noise. So for whatever reason, um, it's, it's, it's usually more effective to kind of figure a technique out by yourself if you're able than mm-hmm. it is to be told because your attention is, is divided in a lot of different directions. And the way that you internally conceptualize a technique might be different from one person to the next. And the way that you teach the technique sometimes could be based on your own internal, I don't know what to call it, mapping of how to um, execute the technique in your own internal timing, where it actually might be better to let the person make a lot of mistakes in pursuit of their own way of doing the technique or their own way of, of understanding it internally. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, like being a hundred percent honest, you know, if other coaches are looking at this method, that's one of the the struggles that I have. And so really the two big struggles that I have are getting students to learn, like look at stuff beforehand, which is crazy to me. Like, I feel like almost like, and I, I talk to my students about this all the time. Like they are constantly on Instagram and, and YouTube looking at other techniques. I'm like our, my videos and, and some of the other videos that I point to are like two minutes long. Like you, you have <laughs> eight minutes in, in your day in order to, to like look at this stuff or at least you should. Um, but, uh, the other big one is that I do point to that a lot where, um, you know, if I want this student to figure it out a little bit more themselves, I'm going to try to help them through, the process, but I, I really like to do less like, you know, okay, so what we're going to do is this, this, and this it's okay. Well, why, you know, why do you think we want this? And so it's a lot of why questions. And I think a lot of the students really get annoyed with that. Hey, sorry to interrupt you right in the middle of the podcast, but I promise it'll only take a second. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the combat learning email newsletter at combatlearning.com slash newsletter. Not only will you never miss an episode of the Combat Learning Podcast, you'll get exclusive tips and resources straight to your inbox. And I'm giving away my ebook, an introduction to motor learning for martial artists, so you can get up to speed on the central topics of this podcast. But that's not even it. I'll also invite you to our private Facebook discussion group so you can ask any questions you want or discuss any topic related to teaching and learning martial arts. And all of this is 100% free. So go to combatlearning.com slash newsletter right now to subscribe and claim all this cool stuff for yourself. That's combatlearning.com slash newsletter. Uh, but my, my goal behind this is so that they can get a greater understanding of it. Um, but it's, it, it, it definitely does not help. Like sometimes I feel like, um, you know, just like with my other instruction, I think stu- students want to come in, um, not have to think sometimes and, and then just be able to replicate techniques 
and say, yep, I feel good about myself. And then they get to roll and then they get to go home. You know, there's not much actual thinking involved. And that's, um, you know, I definitely think you can improve from that. But I think once you figure out how to make it, you know, quite a few techniques work and, and how they work, um, I think that makes you so much better on the, on the mats. And so, it, but the, the only struggle with it is the fact that asking students to do this continually, I think sometimes is, is annoying. So to students. It is a lot, and this is not based on research. This is more of an, an opinion of mine from a, a observation. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though these sort of techniques we're talking about seem to result in better learning outcomes, it, it seems to be based that that this is actually how humans learn better. Um, people almost have to be untrained <laughs> from right. from the way the way that they've been. I guess, uh, inculcated educational values. So they, they actually prefer and expect a very instructor led didactic model, even though they learn better through another model. So they get upset, which is actually not good for learning. (laughs) It's a, it's a cat. It's a little bit of a catch 22, but, um, they get they get upset because they they perceive. I wrote an entire article on this. They perceive good instruction as highly detailed and involved instruction, even though that's not good for their learning process. Right. Yeah, and it's uh, like I said. You know, I I agree. You know, once that student gets upset, um, you know, cortisol goes up, and then all of a sudden they can't, uh, uh, or cortisol goes up, and then they can't. Uh, you know, it's hard for them to retain anything anymore, but yeah, it's definitely, you know, in a perfect world for me, if we could go back to a little bit of the apprenticeship model where, you know, okay, they try something and then the, you know, the master worker kind of looks at that and says, no, go ahead and, you know, fix this, fix that. Um, and then just keep on tinkering and making it slightly better. I think it's probably a better model, but yeah, I, I agree. I think most students are used to the idea of, you know, sitting in front of a classroom and regurgitating a lot of the information that the, the instructor is giving out. So, yeah. And they, they expect, they expect if something goes wrong, they expect to look at the instructor and get an immediate answer, which is not always the optimal way to get feedback. Right. Um, yeah. And, and that's, it's nice in the fact that like, I, while I am kind of doing that same stuff, it's, it's, um, I think they are starting to get the point of, you know, I, I want them to try to figure it out because it, it, they, for the most part, there's, you know, jujitsu is, uh, super vast, but you know, if you look at it, okay, you, you've got, you know, extension submissions, you've got compression submissions, you've got rotational submissions. That's really about, you know, it. And so if you can delve it down to that concept, you can figure out most, you know, submissions or sweeps, you've got, you know, a couple of different situations. If you can kind of figure out the mechanics like those and, you know, kit, Kid Dale talks about that same stuff all the time. And, you know, him and I've had those same conversations where, um, I think, you know, his system and my system can work really well together. Um, but, um, you know, if they could step back and say, okay, conceptually, why is this arm bar not working? Or, you know, conceptually, why is this triangle not working? You know? So I think that's, um, they're starting to do a lot of that and that makes me, me happy, but I still get quite a few students that are, Okay, just just tell me the answer. So it's it reminds me of the the Joe Rogan podcast when um uh <coughs> um oh gosh um Donaher was on Donaher? Don, Don, <laughs> yep and so yeah. he's like well what do you what do you see Joe Rogan and he's like and you could 
see like Joe Rogan visibly getting like annoyed by that because he, you know, he's like, I, I don't know. Like, so, you know, and so, uh, Donner was trying to pull information out of him. Um, and I, Joe Rogan got a little bit frustrated, I think, in the fact that he didn't know what he was asking for. So I think that was a little bit half in the fact of like, okay, uh, maybe Donner was not asking like an appropriate question, but then also, um, I think, um, he was trying to pull information out of him and, and maybe, uh, Joe was not quite familiar with it. So. Yeah, and Joe is very knowledgeable, knowledgeable no, about sure. Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So it, no, for sure. it, it was it was a really interesting episode for me because even though he is such a knowledgeable knowledgeable martial artist, he was not prepared to step into like an analyst type of mindset mm-hmm. and sure. give the information that John was looking for. Um well, so, it, yeah, go ahead. I, I think, you know, um we're definitely coming of the age of, um, specialists, I, I think. And so John is very much a, a really wealth of knowledge in, in a bunch of different places, but I feel like a lot of people were super behind in the leg entanglement stuff. So if you were to ask him, okay, what do you see from a, like an arm bar perspective? I think that would be one thing compared to, I think the leg entanglement game for somebody that's been training for 20 years, like myself or, uh, you know, Joe Rogan, uh, as well is is sort of new and so we have feel like we have this should have this knowledge but it's such a niche area that's obviously it's it's grown in the last few years so now if, as an instructor if you don't have that information i feel like you're behind like way behind um but the uh i feel like that's the the struggle is that you know donaher has such a wealth of knowledge in that subject because he's really you know dove into that 100 percent um and so somebody like joe rogan and and you know, previously some of the other instructors out there were just not super aware of, of some of those yet. Yeah. And I've been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu on and off for like the past four or five years. I'm still a white belt because I haven't been sure. consistent, but <laughs> um, I'm just now getting into the leg lock stuff. I haven't, um, I, I, I trained at a Tom DeBlas affiliate now and I was training it more, um, I guess you would say traditional Gracie style kind of. Mm-hmm. gyms before like a, a guy that used to train uh i learned from a guy who um is affiliated with uh roberto traven i think his name was and he he came yep. from gracie baja so we used the gracie baja curriculum and then i i trained um at a gordo affiliate i trained at um lucas lepre's um academy which was awesome it was i i, I loved training there and i, I had to leave unfortunately because i got a job like way far away um but there wasn't a lot of like I think I learned a straight angle lock. <laughs> right. There was not a lot of leg positioning, not a lot of like um, uh, submissions. And when we did learn like submissions, we actually didn't do a lot with like positioning, like the Ashigarami leg entanglement posi- mm-hmm. position, which is probably I think one of the one of the keys to John Donaher's success is his ability to break down the position that leads up to the submission itself. Right. Um, so yeah, and, that's been really know, interesting. As a as a coach too, that like that was something that all of a sudden, like it, to me, technology is is really changing the sport more than anything I've I've ever seen. Where it's like I said before, you can go on and, and see high level instruction. Where you know, ten years ago when I was competing, um, if you had a series of techniques, um, or if you had you know some specialty, you could keep that 
and compete in very well and, and, and keep that information to yourself for the longest time. And now that that's not the case. I mean, it seems like one or two months and then all of a sudden everybody kind of understands, okay, you can do this, this, and this. And, you know, look, um, I think the, the leg entanglement stuff, I think a lot of older coaches wanted to try to stay away from it as much as possible, but now it's, you, you have to include it in your, uh, in your curriculum. And I think some students, um, you know, before it was like, okay, or I should say as coaches, like you said, you know, okay, we're going to do straight ankle locks, but that's it. But now it's, if you, especially with so many tournaments out there that are submission only and, and different rule sets, um, and you know, some of the rule sets where as a white belt, you can do a, a straight ankle lock or you can do a hill hook or a knee bar. You have to pretty much show white belts earlier and earlier, um, you know, leg lock, def- at least leg lock defense, not necessarily maybe leg locks, but leg lock defense at least. Oh, for sure. Um, we have a we have a similar issue in Olympic style Taekwondo with a lot of old school guys who wish it was like it was in the good old days. Mm-hmm. Um, they refuse to teach some of the techniques that they don't like from from where competition is now, the new school stuff to mm-hmm. the to where Taekwondo has evolved as as a sport. And an example of that technique is the um, what's called the cut kick and a cut kick is basically just a lead leg yep. side kick that can be used in a variety of different ways. It's a lot, um, quicker than, um, like a nice fully chambered side kick. And, um, it's compared to like your really controlled aesthetic traditional technique. It's a little uglier, but, um, methodologically it's very useful and, and, with the the dawn of the the ihogu, the electric chess gear that that helps keep score, it's become necessary to be to to compete at um, at an elite level. Um, and instructors, some of some of them are coming around because they're realizing that their students now can't even win on a local level, which is that's pretty bad if you can't even win at a local level. Um, sure. But a lot of them are just they refuse, like they refuse because it's like that's you know that's not traditional technique, that's not a real taekwondo technique. I don't care about the sport. I don't care about the sport enough to actually help my students to be competitive and um go out there and 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 improve and 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 do that which you know if you have students that really want to compete that hurts them right and that's you know like right now i mean it's very much the case if you were to you know so you know some white belt or blue belt goes out and buys you know let's say the donaher series uh, you know of leg locks you know that's a, a fairly in-depth system to where if somebody were to go out there um you know, as a, a white or a blue belt, if that other white or blue belt didn't know how to stop a lot of that stuff, I mean, he's going to be able to win at a very high level in those, or I should say for a, you know, local tournaments, he should be able to do very well just because he's, you know, created a little bit of a niche in that, uh, in his skill set. So. Yeah, for sure. So you, you talked about a little bit about technology and I wanted to ask you, how can instructors start using technology to help them teach more effectively? Um, you know, I think at a, at a whole, or even at a ba- minimum, I should say, um, I think it would be better for instructors to start at least videotaping their instruction if they didn't want to go over to this full model. Um, mm-hmm. Being able to um, videotape um, some of their instruction beforehand and then being able to give it to the students 
uh, beforehand. So they're a little bit primed for when they come in and uh, do that in class. Um, you know, they've already done that. So if some of the students want to go off to the side and start um, doing the technique while the other uh, class is done, you know, going through the instruction, that way, you know, those students that do have the time beforehand, they can start to learn some of that. Um, and then one of the other big things we try to videotape um, pretty much all of our rolling sessions um, is, you know, like you've, you've probably heard it a lot of times your, uh, you know, the way you remember the role is completely different from the way it is. And so mm -hmm. now with, uh, you know, being able to have a, a cell phone or uh, a GoPro, or we just honestly use a couple webcams, uh, being able to put those up on YouTube as an unlisted video um, for our students so they can go home and, and watch them later. Um, so they can okay, so how did he get me in this arm bar? Or how did he do this before? Like um, taking it two or three steps back and, and doing that. Um, one of the other big things I think would be good for um, students and, and good for coaches is, you know, uh, figure out some way, whether it be through Google Drive or Evernote or what, um, but have um, students be able to give you goals. Um, in, in, in my opinion, kind of three levels. Um, so um, if that student can think of, okay, who am I, um, who's a lot better than me um, in class than when I roll with, who is competitive with me and who is, um, who am I way better than? And so having three goals set up for those either for the week or for the month and saying, okay, um, if, with a person that's way better than me, okay, how can I work my defensive stuff? Can I do guard retention stuff? Can I do something to where, um, even though I'm going to most likely lose in that situation, can I get some wins out of trying to get into, you know, okay, he had inside control and I went into, was able to get into guard or get back something. And then the competitive person continually trying to refine their, um, their main game, uh, you know, that if you're to go out there and compete what their main game would be. And then on that, um, person that they're brand new with, uh, or that I should say that, uh, they're quite a bit better than trying to, you know, okay, what things can I add into the game this, or, you know, to my game this time? Cause I think that's one of the biggest things that students struggle with. I think, especially, I know this is true in in sparring, um, both in, you know, Muay Thai and, and boxing and MMA that you go into these, um, uh, you know, rolling sessions or, uh, you know, MMA sparring rounds, things like that without a true goal in mind, you're just, just operating on whatever your normal game is. And I think you can mm -hmm. do so much better if you, you know, say beforehand, um, okay, can I make this happen? And so like, there's not really a way to quantify for the most part, jujitsu stuff. You can say, okay, I got seven arm bars this time, but, um, uh, that's only if you put that goal in, you know, beforehand. Um, you know, visit like it's, it's nice if you lift weights and you say, okay, yesterday I lifted, you know, 130 pounds today. I lifted 135 pounds. I'm obviously getting better. Uh, but in jujitsu, it's tough sometimes to quantify results. And so I think if you don't have those goals placed beforehand of like, okay, I'm going to try to get, you know, this to happen against, you know, X, Y, or Z, then it's, um, you really don't have any results. Yeah. So it's always it's always better to try and track what you're doing as clearly as possible, but with martial arts, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it, like I said, it, it needs to be as as detailed as possible because it, you need to be able to assess a grade on how well you did something. Yeah, um, that's it's interesting that you brought that up because a lot of instructors, if they actually if they get to the point where they write something down for like uh, assessment purposes. 
-hmm. they aren't very detailed. Um, and when I started going through my master's degree program, I realized that was a real problem with, um, objectivity to assessment. And, um, one thing I tried to do, and I don't know if I succeeded at it, and I'll probably have to go back and revise it a lot is I tried to actually boil down what are the most important aspects of a technique. In my case, I was teaching Taekwondo. So I'm trying to break down, um, punches and kicks. And then what are the key details that I'm looking for that are um, going to keep you safe so you don't blow out your knee and um, are going to hopefully maximize power? So, you know, I'll, I'll go, I'll say, okay, um, I want them to be to smoothly and smoothly perform a round kick. And then I'll break down step by step what things I need to check off in order for it, for it to count. So it's not just me eyeballing it. There's actually some mm -hmm. rules, I guess you could say there's actually like a rubric there. It's not perfect, but, um, there are some things that you, you want to see from, from all of your students, like, a like, a, a pivot on the ball of the foot, a pivot that's within a range of, um, degrees, you know, you don't necessarily have to pivot an entire 160 degrees for a round kick, but somewhere around there. So you're not putting strain on the knee and, mm -hmm. you know, how smooth is the, the transition from chamber to kick? What, what surface are they using? You know, things like that. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, I, I, would, I haven't done that yet for like the jujitsu side, as far as, um, you know, true assessment. Um, but it is definitely something that, uh, you know, I've kind of played with around as far as like trying to create spreadsheets of, of how to make that, those information, you know, that information more, um, universal, if you will, like you said. Yeah. Which is always hard because I, I think you, you kind of alluded this to this before people kind of develop their own way of doing things. And even if it doesn't match up to the established formal version of it, sometimes it works. Right. And it's like, can you, are you really correcting them if you're trying to make them do, do it a way that doesn't work for them or, you know, right. what, what counts, what, what's a non-negotiable and what has a range that's yep. very difficult. I haven't figured that out. So I don't even, I haven't even begun to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, you know, when you sit down and try to do it, it gets to be, you know, very difficult on how you can assess that because then you also have to include, you know, this person's athletic ability just in general and a, a couple other uh areas i feel like too so yeah well um i think i'm running out of time so uh this is an this is an awesome episode and thank you for coming on yeah for sure i i enjoy it like i said i um i uh i've always kind of alluded to the fact that i, I definitely want more people to kind of try this method there's it's definitely not um where i feel it needs to be i feel like it can get a lot better and definitely if people uh have a lot more um background in in the learning side of things i, I think it'll it'll get better and it's obviously the more that people do it i think it'll get better but i, I definitely know that there needs to be um a change in the sport because i i think it's can be done so much so much better and you know people allude to the fact that well you know there's world champions that you know that do it the same way. And I, and I completely agree. I, I think, um, obviously it's working for, um, very committed folks, but I, I also think that there's probably even better ways, um, for these students to be learning. So, um, I want to try to figure that out as much as possible and make sure that, 
you know, it's not just the, the top people that are, that are getting better that everybody, you know, in that same, from the very, you know, 55 year old grandma that, um, wants to learn jujitsu to the, you know, 20 year old, uh, black belt stud that wants to learn and, and get better. I think everybody should be able to, um, have a method in such a way to, uh, to learn at everybody's, uh, best level, I guess, or best, uh, speed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, um, I feel you there. I mean, there's, there's, I, I really, there's almost no one in, in my life except for maybe two people that can even talk about motor learning, educational psychology, coaching science, any of that stuff that I can actually bounce ideas off of, compare mm-hmm. notes. And I know how frustrating that is. And, um, you know, we can develop the flipped cl- classroom model a lot faster and a lot better if the, if we have a collaborative community of instructors who are trying things out and it, comparing notes and and bouncing ideas off each other and and each kind of developing their own um, practical and research knowledge base um, where they can trade techniques and in on the combat learning podcast I definitely want to serve as a sort of call to action to people like hey listening to the podcast do your own research and, you know, let's start forming a network of instructors so we can get this stuff out here and really bring martial arts instruction out of, um, the, the beginning of the 20th century and into the now into the middle of the 21st century. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then the, the only other thing I'll say is that like, uh, if anybody else can figure out this, one of the, the problems that I run into as well is that the, I feel like class is, is very much a, you know, it's like 75% instruction, but it's also 25% showmanship. And so, mm-hmm. uh, one of the other problems that I'll, I think we'll, um, our, our style needs to address is the, the fact that like, now that I don't have that, um, you know, in front of everybody, you know, I'll say, okay, you know, here's an R bar and then we're going to do this and we can also do this. And that kind of like, wow, or that showmanship, um, that an instructor can have that kind of goes away. And so I think that's, um, one of the drawbacks, I, I, you know, I always try to allude to the fact that, you know, this is not a perfect system. Uh, you know, it's got its flaws and the fact that like, I think sometimes people come in, you know, not only to be, to learn, but also to be, you know, that wow factor a little bit of like, okay, I can turn a, you know, an arm bar into a triangle and a triangle into an omoplata and, you know, omoplata into a back take, all that same stuff. And the, the showmanship that an instructor has, I, I feel like that with this system is, is lost a little bit. So. Yeah, and that that's actually a great point that there is a legitimate motivational aspect to the inst- instructor-led training. Mm-hmm. Um I feel like that probably diminishes the longer a student is with you, but it's definitely very important up front, especially if you're a new a new student. Yeah. Um and you know, just sort of my offhand thoughts on that would be maybe there there is a special just one special inter- introduction course, maybe not, not not an ongoing class all the time, but when you when you kind of bring on board a, a, a bunch of new students, maybe you have like a, a four to six week period where you do more of a traditional um, classroom model where you have some of that that showmanship, you develop a um, that relationship kind of upfront, and sure. then you use that period to kind of train them, wean them onto the the flipped classroom model. So you can kind of, I guess, use that as a period to get buy-in and sell them on it. Sure. I don't know if that'll work. That's just kind of my thoughts up front. See, this is why we need more people doing this stuff. (laughs) so We can bounce these ideas off each other. So, yeah, but yeah, thank you very much. 
for real. Thank you, man. Guys, thank you so much for listening. If you have any feedback, you can email me at josh at combatlearning.com or send me a message on facebook.com slash combatlearning. Now, real quick before I go, can I ask you a huge favor? If you got value from this episode, leave us a review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcasting platform is. So many shows pop up and fizzle out. And we're talking about stuff that nobody else is talking about, and we want to stick around. So leaving us a review helps us a ton. Finally, the show is produced by Micah Peacock. Thanks in advance, and I'll see you on the next episode.